This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 397. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I'm your host, Riley Bowman, and I'm joined by our producer-in-chief, master shooter extraordinaire, <laughs> elite That's instructor, you. Matthew Marister. That's you, man, but I'm, I'm happy to be here with you. <laughs> uh, I am glad you're here with me as well, man, and uh, today's going to be a great episode. Uh, today is our... News and gear reviews episode. Uh, we've got uh, a couple of stories, so we're a little bit light on the news, but actually these are two stories that I think have a lot of, uh, you know, tendency for a little bit more in-depth analysis. So we're going to be talking about a story, actually, uh, an article written by my friend Jake Jackson over at Tier3Tactical.com called 27 Statistics That Describe How Criminals Use and Obtain Illegal Firearms. That should be a good one. That should be really interesting. Actually, it's based around uh, a Bureau of Justice Statistics uh, report that was recently released, and he breaks down the stats in that, and we'll, we'll go over that. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting stuff. And then, surprisingly, an, an article from thetrace.org, which is you know the, the site that covers gun issues that tries to sound super uh, reasonable in their reporting and analysis, but reality is supported by crazy gun grabbing you know guys like uh, michael bloomberg uh but this article's actually mostly pretty good yeah um but it, it asks some interesting questions and i think it's worth discussing so uh, this one's when protesters carry guns does it impede others free speech two really interesting issues to discuss and then matthew and i will get into this episode this we, we do this once a month now this particular episode and so we will do our gear reviews and uh, i don't know what matthew's got coming up well i do but i'm not going to say what it is yet <laughs> and i'm going to be talking about uh, a relative still a relatively new gun but i've been shooting it for the last several months and uh, really liking it so uh, I'll, I'll share that here in a little bit as well today's episode is made possible and brought to you by the law of self-defense lawofselfdefense.com is where you can find andrew branca uh the expert on law of self-defense of course andrew's been on the show before and uh you know we we appreciate the work he does to better educate civilian concealed carriers or really anybody that might have or use a gun in self-defense or really just do anything in terms of self-defense right law of self-defense is not the law of gun defense because it applies to if you had to use a knife a bat whatever you know like so andrew branca and law of self-defense law self-defense.com uh check him out give him support him support and make sure you you are well acquainted with the book law of self-defense uh it is uh i think the best book out there for teaching us the correct and proper uh use and understanding of law of self-defense so uh, check check them out, and then also CCW Safe is another sponsor of today's episode. Uh, we love the guys and the team over at CCW Safe, Mike Darter and crew. Uh, you know, a bunch of uh, former cops, retired cops, uh, and and others that uh, you know, most of which have been involved at some point themselves in use of force, particularly use of deadly force cases. So they know a thing or two about it, and they're really passionate about making sure that all the rest of us 
have the resources uh, behind us, backing us up. Uh, you know, just, just, I mean, Matthew, you know uh, that cops have have access to things that civilians don't in terms of legal representation when absolutely. they use uh, deadly force, when they have yeah. a use of force uh, incident, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's basically what, that, that was Mike Darter's mission. And his team there was, hmm, now that we've, we've retired or that we've left uh, police work, we're realizing the same things we we ha- had uh, or the the resources we had as police officers we don't have access to like you know in, in the public sphere so uh, they started CCW safe and of course we have the 20% discount available to Guardian Nation members so I hope our members are taking advantage of that and we hope that if you are considering your choice who that should be uh, there's a lot of options out there and they're not and, and they're all pretty good but I hope you'll consider CCW safe for your self-defense coverage program all right uh, they will step in and they will help you all the way through the process uh, after you've had to legally use deadly force to defend yourself or loved ones so check them out ccwsafe.com all right let's get to our first story Matthew yeah for sure all right, so 27 statistics that describe how criminals use and obtain illegal firearms. Now, Jake just published this a couple days ago, and he sent this over to me. He said, dude, what do you think? And uh, we, we, you know, I, I said, this is great. Let's let's get this put out there. Uh, so we shared it on our social media. And actually, I made it part of uh, my first ever uh, Riley Roundup email that uh, is going to go out once a week now. So, guys, if you are on our email list, uh, then you're missing out on that. And it's just a collection of uh, cool stuff from me. <laughs> uh, no, uh, you know, it, it, there's going to be features uh, from the podcast and shop talk and stuff like that that I do each week. But I'm I'm always going to f- feature. Uh, not just an you know article on our site, but also uh, an article from somebody else. You know whether it's Jake Jackson or maybe something from Greg Elfords because he's always putting out great stuff, or uh, even Rich Brown from American War Society, Mike Seeklander, You know that sort of thing. If if I find something that I think is really interesting and really worth worth a read, then that will get shared also in that Riley Roundup uh, weekly email that digest. So I decided for the first one it was going to be 27 statistics that describe how criminals use and obtain illegal firearms. Matthew, I know you looked this over. What was your first impression? Yeah, it was, it was really good. I, I think uh, just as an overview, it's really important when we're, whenever we're talking about a topic like this, that we actually have statistics to back up our anecdotal, you know, Hey, this is what I've seen. And, and, and you know, this is my experience. Um, and that's what's lacking in a lot of these, these articles, um, that people share on social media or memes and things like that. There's no actual statistics. You can't look at the numbers and you can't see how they came up with this. So it's really just assertions. And, um, and, and I think that's where people start talking at each other and th- they're not using the same statistics because one person's just made them up. Right. And so, yep. um, so I think, you know, he did a great job of pulling, uh, survey data from, uh, Bureau of Justice Statistics and, and really putting it into a, distilling it down to, to the essentials of, of how to, criminals using guns, where do they get them? And, and because that's really a big question. It's not about, um, sh- you know, what, you know, what law abiding citizens are doing, right? It's really, we should be focusing on 
the criminal behavior, not guns in general, but the criminal behavior with the guns. And that's what this article really, really touched on. Yep. Yeah. I, you know, and it, you're exactly right. The statistics are really important. You know, things that actually we can look to as numbers, as data points, it, you know, that, that backs up exactly, you know, the positions, uh, you know, it, it's, it's one thing just to have an opinion about what you think happens or how you think things occur. Now, this survey data, it's actually, it is a survey. These statistics are based off of a survey of federal and state prisoners. Uh, it was conducted by the Bureau of Justice Statistics. Um, you know, so it, it, it that's a good thing because chances are it's done pretty well. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't just thrown together by, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, a reporter or something. Not that that would be bad either. I've actually seen some, some things from uh, uh, journalists where they did similar things where they went in to interview criminals and things to learn a little bit more about them. Uh, but uh, this is an official survey done by the Bureau of Justice Statistics, which is a DOJ uh, uh, uh well, subsidiary, if you will. It's a uh, part of the DOJ. Um, it is a pretty long uh, document, but it's filled with tons of, of good stuff. It's a, I mean, it's 20 pages. I mean, so you can get through this in a you know, half hour or so. Um, but I think let's just kind of start diving down into this, Matthew, and let's pull out a couple of key takeaways. And the very first thing, and it's right there in the very first line of the report, uh, is that about one in five, so 21% of all state and federal prisoners reported that they had possessed or carried a firearm when they committed the offense for which they were serving time in prison. So 21%, uh, so these, again, these are state and federal prisoners. Uh, they said that they were carrying a gun at the time that they committed the crime that they are now in jail for. Uh, and then it also says that Thirteen uh, percent of those, or, or excuse me, of all prisoners. So, so it's not thirteen percent of that twenty-one percent. It's thirteen percent. So, it's really it's about it's more than half of those that were carrying a gun when they committed their offense. They used it during mm -hmm. the commission of the crime, either by showing it, pointing it, or discharging it during that offense, that same offense. Okay. So, and then this is all just in the first paragraph. Fewer than one in 50, less than 2% of all prisoners had obtained a firearm from a retail source and possessed, carried, or used it during the offense for which they were in prison. Wow. Yeah. That's actually, I mean, like, that's remarkable. Uh, you know, okay, so again, we have 21%. They're in jail. They're being, you know, surveyed as part of this, this study. 21%. Were carrying a gun when they committed their crime. Thirteen percent were used it during that crime in some fashion, and only two, actually less than two percent, it said they actually obtained that from a retail source. So, uh, you know, now I don't know how in depth that goes. I mean, like I, that that could be interpreted as. They didn't even have somebody go and per, you know do a straw purchase for them on their behalf, like that it came from some other source other than a retail source. So most of these guns uh, came from a non-retail source is how I read that. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so there's three statistics already. There's 27, we said, and I don't know if we're going to get through all 27. Uh, I don't know that it would be the most interesting thing to do that anyway, but uh, if you continue looking down through the data, uh, Matthew, what are some other things that jump out at you. 
Yeah, I mean, you you touched on it where where they're getting it. Obviously, I mean, we know in the gun community that criminals aren't going to to uh, to retail sources, right? But I, I was um, I was interested in that the, the when he broke down um, how they were obtaining it, you know, from those other sources. Were they from burglaries, thefts, and things like that, or um, you know, were they stolen? And I was surprised um, on on that level that um, I think it says here about almost 7% were found at the location of the crime. Um, Almost a little over four and a half percent were were brought by somebody else. So, you know, they they committed this crime must have been, you know, in tandem and one of them had a firearm and one of them didn't. Um, But thefts only accounted for 6.4%. Um, of of the firearm. So in, in, you know, we keep reading uh, statistics from police that, you know, uh, auto burglaries where firearms are taken are, are skyrocketing. So if, if, you know, if those are, if, if that's plays out true, you know, then these other sources that they're getting from burglaries or car burglaries, um, if they're going up, then that means the, the, the number of firearms are drastically going up because proportionally it doesn't seem like criminals are, are that, that was the typical way they get, they, you know, obtain the firearm. They typically either, um, uh, you know, buy it from straw purchase or they buy it from somebody illegally or something like that. Yep. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Uh, let's let's take a look at some other things here. Uh, there was some data about uh, how the guns were used. Right, mm-hmm. we touched on how some were you know just just used it to point. Some uh, uh, just displayed it. You know, like maybe just hold up the sh- hold up their shirt and hey, I got a gun. You know, right? Um, or some actually fired it. And there's even some data about. Uh, how they fired it. And so here's some information right here. All right. So according, and this is among state prisoners, 27% killed, you know, that used a gun, killed somebody with it. Mm -hmm. 27%. 12% injured someone. And around 54% did not fire it. So this begins to break down some data uh, in that, um, so if, if if we take those that had and and well those that had a gun during the commission of their crime, about you know the biggest chunk is fifty four percent did not fire it, right? Twenty seven percent clearly fired it because they killed somebody. Twelve percent fired it, but they injured somebody, and that leaves oh I don't know twelve thirteen percent or something where uh, uh, they they fired it, okay. But they actually fired it like up in the air or something. Okay, right. that, that's covered also somewhere here. Uh, let's see. Uh, it actually says Seven. right here: sixty-eight percent of them w- said they would use a firearm in the commission. Or excuse me, among state prisoners, there was a sixty-eight percent chance they would use a firearm in the commission of their crime, and a forty-six percent chance they would discharge a round. So almost half, okay, among state prisoners would discharge a round as part of the commission of their crime. They've got a gun, okay? In 7.1% of cases, so I was a little bit off of my math, the ma- the weapon was discharged into the air. Uh, and then in, it says again, in 21.5% of cases, it was not discharged at all. 
Um, actually, I must be misinterpreting something because that's a little bit different than what I was just saying a moment ago. Um, and so it, it just depends on where it comes from. Um, and there's a lot to parse through, so I apologize if I got something wrong. So that's the point here, by the way, the link to the to both the article and to the actual Bureau of Justice Statistics, the BJS uh, report, all going to be in the show notes of the episode. Um, I think I failed to get the article links themselves in the description under the Facebook and YouTube headings, but uh, I know the article uh, link is there straight to the, the BJS report. So you guys can go and check that out and, and look into it yourself. Yeah, I, th- I think the big takeaway from those numbers is that um, roughly one in four criminals killed somebody. Okay, yeah. so uh, one in four criminals that actually had a firearm killed somebody with it, um, which is, you know, is pretty sobering. I mean, um, if they have a firearm, you have a, you know, 25 percent chance that you're going to die if somebody has a, has a firearm. Um, nearly half of the peop- uh, criminals who had a firearm on them shot somebody with it. Uh, yeah. either killing them or injuring them. And, and and then, so, you know, that that's pretty crazy because a lot of people, I, I, I hear a lot of people saying, well, he had a gun and you don't know if he was really going to use it or not. Right. It might not have been loaded and he just had it for, you know, uh, to scare people. Well, the statistics kind of bear out the fact that if you're playing that, that odds, it's not great odds that you're going to survive somebody pulling out a firearm. Uh, yeah. You, you know, you have a, you have a 75% chance of not being killed, but you have a 50% chance of being shot and killed or injured. So right. um, it's that, that statistic is, is really clear. Yeah. Well, let's be real too, that a big chunk of uh, crimes where guns were used are in gang related violence. Of course. Right. And there's a there's a piece here that addresses that as well. Uh I'm trying to find that real quick. There's just so much to go through. I had it at one point. Um, but it talked about uh yeah, here we go. So it broke down circumstances uh that led to uh, people's deaths that were, you know, as a result of these guns used in crimes. And it said sixty six point five percent of these were gang related. Right, and, and that's not really surprising. Fifteen point nine percent were drug related. Thirteen point one percent were a personal dispute, and so the reality is actually less than five percent of deaths uh, from these guns used in these crimes were be- were because of robbery and domestic violence. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, so many of us probably have it in our minds that well, I'm carrying my gun out in the public because there's this chance that I'm going to be robbed, and I mean, you know, and I might get shot in that robbery. Well, it sounds, you know, the, the truth of the matter is, statistically speaking, that's actually a pretty low probability. Uh, but that probability, you know, but it certainly exists. Uh, you know, your, your probability of getting shot in a robbery, if you are able to avoid a robbery altogether is basically zero. Uh, but you know, we don't always have that, uh, that choice. So, uh, but if we quarantine all of ourselves because of coronavirus, uh, you know, those numbers will go way down as far as those robberies. Yeah. In, in, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, sorry, I, I'm being a little bit tongue in cheek with that. Right. You, you sound like you were taking me a little too seriously. No, no, no. no. I I was going to, I was going to expand on that and say, you know, it's, it's the focus, right? Like there, when, when you look at 5% of, of, of the times, uh, uh, people are 
are actually robbed, right? That's the 5% of, of firearms being used to rob somebody. But 65, let's say 65, 75, 80, about 90% are either drug, gang, or some sort of personal dispute right. where you, you may be caught in the, in the collateral damage of this, right? Depending on where you live and things. Um, but we're, we're looking at an overwhelming majority of, of uh, gun usage is it's societal problems, right? It's, 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 um, morality problems, gang related stuff, drug related stuff. And so when you're focusing on gun, the gun aspect of it to stop potentially maybe, you know, the 5% that are just random, you know, random, uh, uh, a robbery, you're not even going to, you're not going to touch on any of the, make an actual impact. And, and so I think um, this, to me, while I was reading it, I was saying, wow, this is, this is total proof and total uh, evidence that we need to shift the conversation from like um, fighting about gun rights and things, because of course we have to fight for gun rights, but we have to switch the conversation back to, well, if you really want to end uh, or diminish gun violence. Let's look at where the most gun violence is, is perpetrated and direct those resources towards that. And that's gang related, uh, drug related stuff. Let's not, you know, move to decriminalize guns and, or, or drugs and decriminalize gang activity. Let's try to figure out what's causing that. And that will in turn, you know, reduce yep. gun crime. So, um, that's, that's always the argument, right? That's why we, they want to push more gun control is to curb gun crime. Well, mm -hmm. 90% of it is, is right in front of you. You know what it, what's causing it. Um, so. Right. Yeah. You know, and that's, yeah, well, we could get really deep with a lot of that. I do, we, we should move on to our other article here and we want to make sure we have some time for our reviews, but, uh, for sure. but I want to just touch on before we go, uh, getting more specific on sources of where these criminals obtained their guns. So earlier, I think it was mentioned that less than 2%, but I, again, I think that number was pointing to all of these prisoners that were interviewed, less than 2% obtained guns from a retail source. So of those that had guns and used them, you know, in the commission of their crimes, it, that, that percentage is obviously going to be a little bit bigger. And, and so what it says here is that if we're looking at all prisoners and it does break it down by state and by federal prisoners, but uh, if we just, I'm just going to focus on the all prisoners numbers here. All right. So, all prisoners purchased or traded a gun at a retail source. Ten point one percent. That's that's that was the source of their gun. Seven and a half percent from a gun shop or store. Keep in mind, every gun shop runs background checks. So this this tells you that the reason they are able to obtain that through a legal source, as far as you know, the uh, uh, this is implies I think a gun shop is. I mean. Uh, gun shops don't stay in business very long when they sell guns illegally, right? Where they when they don't follow ATF regulations. Um, so this is a legal source of a gun, but this person is obviously obtaining it. You know, either they obtained it some time before they committed the crime. Okay, so some of these could be first time offenders, right? Some that 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 certainly is plausible. Chances are most of them are not, um, but. It also could imply that there's a problem, you know, that there's things that are able to slip through the cracks in the background check system. So when background checks are required, it's only as effective as the actual background check data, you know, the information that's in the database that that's checked against, right? 1.6% uh, from pawn shops, 
0.4% from flea markets and 0.8% from gun shows. Keep in mind, this is from amongst all offenders that used a gun. Less than 1% at a gun show. And yet we hear so much talk about how we got to close these gun show loopholes. Uh, sounds like there's a bigger problem with criminals obtaining guns at legal gun shops by far. Um, okay, this is a bigger one. Obtained from an individual, 25.3%, where 8% purchased or traded from a family or friend, 6.5% rented or borrowed from a family or friend, and 10.8% it was a gift or it was purchased for the prisoner. Mm-hmm. It starts to sound a little bit like a straw purchase, right? Like they right. may have said, well, it was, it was a gift. They bought it for me. Well, I, you know, I, now the definition according to the ETF, right, is if, is if I decide to go and buy a gun, I pay the money for, you know, say a Ruger LCP, and then I give it to Matthew. Of course, he lives out of state, and we're not related. But you know that might so that might be a little bit of a problem. But but Matthew, if you and I were were best friends, and or maybe we're uh, brother and brother, we're brothers, right? <laughs> brother mm-hmm. and brother. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, so I buy a gun and I give it to you as a gift, mm-hmm. right? Well, it's a gift if I chose to buy that and I paid for it, and then I gave it to you. If you gave me money to then buy it, or you reimbursed me for that then it's a straw purchase, mm-hmm. right? Okay, all right. So I want to make sure that's clear for our listeners. And then 43.2% were from off the street, underground, you know, black market, right? 6.4% were from thefts. 17.4% were from other sources, and it specifies these as found at location of crime or victim. So they used a gun in the commission of the crime, and they, it, and they found the gun at the scene of the crime. So this could imply, and it says at location of crime slash victim, this could imply that they break into your house, find your gun, and then shoot you with it. Okay? Um, and then uh, 4.6% brought by somebody else. So, and that, that's, you know, that's not that untypical, actually. You know, the, a lot of these times, these crimes are committed with two, three, four, five individuals. And, you know, this dude here brings the gun, but this dude over here is the one that actually ends up using it. All right. So, that's basically what that is, all right? So these are really, really, really interesting sources. Uh, a couple of problems with a lot of laws that are proposed uh, with regards to universal background checks. Number one, it won't fix the problems with guns that are purchased legally, meaning from gun shops and stores or pawn shops where background checks are actually run. The 0.8% gun show, I wouldn't even worry about that. Even if your yours is a state where private civilians can just be at the uh, gun show and they meet, you know, Joe and say, "Hey, I got this gun. You want to buy it? Yeah, okay." And then they just do a private party transfer. All right. And Colorado can't do that. You got to do background checks at gun shows. Uh, but the point is, their source is only 0.8%. I wouldn't even worry about that. It's such a small percentage. 25% is obtained from family and friends. Uh, I suspect a lot of these from from family. Uh, and the, the problem with universal background check proposals is that they usually, at least all the ones I'm familiar with, have an exclusion for family members, which I think is completely reasonable. I mean, number one, I don't think universal background checks are reasonable at all. But if you're going to have it, then I think it's completely reasonable to allow family members to transfer guns amongst themselves. Right? Well, okay. 
then you're not solving part of the problem. If like if your true intent with passing whatever laws to solve gun crime, uh, there's a big problem then by having an exception for family and friends being able to transfer to 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 the individual that commits the crime. Now the reality is, even if you have that law like that in place, even if you don't have that exception, you're still going to have family and friends that are willing to give you know Joe a gun to go commit a crime. I mean, they may not know he's going to go commit a crime with it, but you're still going to have that situation. You're still going to have that problem, right? And the black market sales. So basically, what I'm saying here is, you got 43 percent, 25 percent, 10 percent. You got like basically 70 plus percent. That uh, these these are problems that are really hard to address with uh, current legislative proposals. Uh, some of them are just flat out hard to address. Period. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to recognize to look at the data. This again, this is government data, and you know I think our legislators should look at this and be like, hmm, maybe we should rethink what we're doing here with some of our our gun control proposals. Right. Of course. All right, I went too long with that, but uh, guys, go check out the uh, the study. It's a it's pretty interesting stuff. Uh, I, li- I like numbers, and it's got some good numbers. Thetrace.org. When protesters carry guns, does it impede others' free speech? Matthew, give us a rundown on this. Give us Man, the, the breakdown. Yeah, I, I I put this in here because I I like constitutional law and I like this kind of stuff. But uh, basically, the argument here is uh, it revolved around uh, protesters, right? And their uh, their ability to peacefully protest, um, and they're saying, well, if somebody care, if protesters are carrying a firearm, um, does that inherently chill the speech or make other people that may protest want to counter protest? Does that make uh, does that make does that chill their speech? Like, so for example, a couple groups that wanted to counter protest uh, the gun rights bills or the uh, gun legislation uh, didn't show up because they said, well, we were scared because we had thousands and thousands of people carrying firearms. Um, and so our, uh, we weren't able to protest peacefully because we were scared. And, um, and so it brought up this debate and, and, you know, so, uh, there was there's some really good in, in, insightful comments in the in the uh, the article, which was, as you mentioned, from the trace, you wouldn't expect a, a kind of a, a, a two sided um, article here. But it, they do a good job of saying, you know, look, um, if, if open carry is legal, then these people aren't doing anything illegal with their firearms and they're peacefully assembling. If if you are afraid of a firearm, well, that's not a universal thought, right? Like not everybody who sees a firearm is scared of it and therefore their speech would be be chilled, right? So um, so there, there's some nuance there because um, I think in Virginia, they passed a law about uh, militias and, and organizing militias and, and being able to, to uh, you know, do militia type activity in general public. Um, and so they were sort of trying to meld these two ideas to say, we don't want these arm, the, these protests with armed people, um, even though there, there were zero uh, incidents of people brandishing firearms or doing anything illegal with the firearm. They were totally mm-hmm. legally carried and, and owned and, and, and everything. And so um, I think this is one of those things where the states are trying to institute these uh, and, and they're rightfully so. They can 
in certain areas, right? Like they can prohibit you from carrying a firearm into the courthouse or into a, a government building, of course. And so they're trying to ex- basically expand that interpretation to say, well, maybe we can get it to say at these paramilitary type activities in conjunction with a protest aren't necessarily peaceful. They're more paramilitary. And therefore we're going to, uh, if we have an event, we're going to ban people from being able to carry a firearm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, There's uh, so, so I mentioned earlier, you know, at the beginning of the episode that this article is actually pretty good. Uh, it, It presents, I think things pretty pretty evenly. So it talks about, you know, is there is there a constitutional case that can be made that would be able to prohibit guns from, you know, just as a in a general sense from being at uh, protests or gatherings. And the article basically says, mm, no, not really. Um, and it actually references uh, these the, the case, and we, I think we talked about this on the podcast a while back. You know, when when the university or when the when Texas, the state of Texas, yes, uh, started allowing uh, on campus carry, uh, there was quite an outcry by a few educators, a couple of you know colleges and universities making a big deal, and really probably just a few people at those colleges and universities making a big deal out of this. So there was a case that went to the Fifth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals, uh, and uh, where these professors lost uh, and you know, they, their argument was that the presence of weapons in the class potential, right? Again, they don't know because the students are carrying concealed, but that the presence of weapons in the class would chill their first amendment academic freedoms. Mm-hmm. But the court found they were choosing to self censor their speech based on the hypothetical future decisions of students. Again, just because you have a gun does not mean and far and far from it, actually that you actually are going to use it to hurt people. Okay, uh, there's a, a section here. It says, do some scholars take exception to the current state of the law? And it quotes Daryl Miller of Duke Law School, who argues in a paper, uh, <laughs> this is a doozy, the presence of a gun in public has the effect of chilling or distorting the essential channels of a democracy. This is a really dumb argument. Because if you look at the history of this nation... <laughs> And uh, our so-called democracy and the founding of it, guns have always been a part of it. And so, you know, if it didn't chill First Amendment freedoms in 1776, then why would it do so now? Now, I get that cultures uh, and societies do change, but... You know, this is a this is a fundamental human right, the right to defend oneself, the right to carry, to bear arms, and it's secured in our Second Amendment of our Constitution. Uh, what? Why should that change? And why suddenly does this chill the democracy? You know, from being able right. to function because people are able to carry guns or have guns. Uh, he says, valueless op- opinions enjoy an inflated currency if accompanied by threats of violence. And again, you know, when you look at these protests, uh, and they, they label them as protests, let's say rallies. I, that sounds a little bit better. Uh, protests, I suppose, is probably accurate. But so recently was the Virginia one where thousands of people showed up and there were people there with guns. Um, I didn't see or hear anybody threatening anybody, Right. Like it, just because you are carrying a gun, even openly, does not mean you're making threats of violence. 
Marianne Franks of the University of Miami, uh, she argued, uh, under the sway of the gun lobby, the Supreme Court has transformed the Second <laughs> Amendment into a super right. Is the First Amendment a super right? Because it sure seems like it is. And it ought to be, by the way. Uh, she says that uh, this chilling effect is felt most acutely by the least powerful members of society. Yeah, I don't even know where to begin with that. Everybody has the right to possess and carry a gun. Well, there's a few exceptions, right? I mean, currently under the law, felons, for instance, cannot and so forth. But but in, in a general sense, everybody has a right to carry a gun. So because you choose not to exercise that right, that somehow makes you less powerful. And now you are intimidated. You are chilled. You do not have... Uh, you cannot fully express your other freedoms because I choose to exercise that that right. right. The logic does just does not add up. It doesn't make any sense. No, it's completely inconsistent. And, and, and what's crazy is at the same time they're 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 uh, making a statement against the firearms. They're making the exact uh, argument why people need firearms. So she's saying just having a firearm. Somebody having a firearm and somebody not just that mere possession of a firearm gives that person the upper hand in speech. Well, maybe if you are scared, right? But think about your right to life, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, your, your, your right to life. So if I know that criminals have firearms, right, I can make that same argument to say I'm a less powerful person in society because criminals now have the ability to have firearms and I don't. So, you know, I don't have the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness because they're a criminal element out, out on the street. Um, and just the mere presence of a firearm chilling speech is difficult to say when you have armed police officers at a, a rally or, or a protest. I could say, well, if you have police officers here with firearms, then I won't feel free to be able to hold up my sign because just the mere presence of a firearm, you know, I don't know, the police officers are going to shoot me because they don't agree with my political stance. So I, I think these arguments are, they sound really nice in, in probably in a classroom on a college campus where everybody nods and, oh, yes, yes, I, I agree. You know, guns are bad, um, NRA bad. But like when held to light and or any sort of, con you know, uh, opposite, uh, hey, question of what do you really let's let's talk about this. They fall apart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, how about this? Consider this. What about situations where you have two groups at an, at, a, at an event, two, two groups of protesters that maybe are on opposite sides. Maybe perhaps one is one group is bigger than the other, right? Because maybe one is there to sort of counter protest, right? So they're typically smaller. And one the one group is shouting down the other group and is able to overwhelm the other group just by sheer noise and commotion. Well, I mean, is, is, is that not a case of First Amendment, you know, speech, free speech, being used to chill the free speech of somebody else. See what I mean? You see what I'm getting at? Oh, so how, how do we how do we take the stance and how do we how do we enforce this? You know, because that to me that's what's implied here is that there are those that would want to enforce some kind of law where if you're going to uh, 
protest or assemble in public that you can't do so with a firearm because just the mere presence of the firearm silences or chills the speech of others. It's a bunch mm-hmm. of bull crap. I'm going to close uh, with a, a statement here from the late Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens, who was not a Second Amendment friend. Uh, and he wrote, your interest in keeping and bearing a certain firearm may diminish my interest in being and feeling safe from armed violence. Wow. If there wasn't a more, a a greater statement, you know, snowflake like statement, I don't know what, what is, you know, it just is remarkable to me that anyone could have served on the Supreme court and have any understanding whatsoever of the second amendment. I mean, like, you're a Supreme Court justice. You know the Constitution. You should know it back and forth. You know every every you know which way. And even if you don't fully believe or support an indiv- in, in the individual right of possessing or carrying of a gun, I mean, just that statement alone right there just is just remarkable to me. Especially when you consider the history of our nation. Yeah, I'm frankly glad he's no longer on the court. <laughs> I, I second that. <laughs> All right. May he rest in peace. <laughs> Just yes. for the sake of not being too harsh. Anyway, uh, speaking ill of the dead. All right. So, um, yeah, I'm sure there's probably more we could cover and go on to. But, uh, Matthew, it's time for gear reviews. And do you have a hard stop today? Are you? Are you? Are you no, happy? I'm good. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, well, I'm still start going to start with you. What is your gear review here today? All right, so I just recently did a uh, an actual written article and video for this. Um, it's called Reach by VeraSafety. And what it is, is it is a, um, a safe, and I, I use this word safe in, in the f- essence of it secures the firearm from being able to be, you know, uh, manipulated or shot. Um, but what it is, is it's a minimal state, minimalistic type safe that is almost like a holster that locks the gun into place. And it has, um, you know, an, uh, R, not an RFD, uh, biometric thumbprint reader. Um, and it's really, it's pretty slick. Um, and, and, you know, initially I know that people are going to say, you know, oh, well, you know, I, 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 I don't like the fact that you can take the magazine out while it's there. I don't like the fact that it's, it, it's open and people could shim it and rip it apart and break it and all that. I, I think the point is, is that there are different solutions, uh, environments or different applications. And I think this is a great solution for if you have younger kids that aren't going to try to, you know, shim it or have the strength to break it off of whatever you have it mounted to. Um, if you need a safe that totally encapsulates it, great. But this safe, um, the biometrics on it are very up to date, like state of the art biometrics. And I found that I have a very high percentage of this uh, thumbprint uh, biometric reader working really well, even better than some of the older ones that I've tested out from different companies and stuff and why I kind of stayed away from the biometric thing. Um, And of course, it's, you know, it's electronic. So sure, something could happen, um, but it has a backup battery in it. It is connected to power, supposed to be connected to power. Um, They have different handgun i think they just listed out 180 gun uh, models that are compatible so you get a different 
uh, holster shell type thing that locks in, but it's a really cool device. And I think that it'll get people um, who maybe didn't use a safe before or some sort of security device before. Um, and they were just putting it in their drawer or something like that to actually start using uh, something that secures the firearm, at least from somebody uh, who, you know, not motivated to steal the gun per se, but maybe just accidentally shoot, uh, shoot the gun like a kid or a neighbor or something like that. Yep. Well, you know, I, I think it's cool to see, you know, these, these new up and coming products, uh, particularly safety related ones. Uh, safety is always something that's at the forefront of my mind because I got five kids that, you know, their safety is of the utmost importance to me. Uh, you know, I have a, I have a method of, of how I maintain that, that safety, you know, how I may ensure that the, uh, my, particularly my youngest children don't get, gain access to firearms. Um, uh, because that is a concern of mine. You know, I have a, a, a almost two-year-old uh, now who, uh, you know, he, he finds his his older brother's toy gun. And the first thing he does, and he sees his older brother, you know, playing with it. And, and mostly my oldest son is just, uh, whether it's a Nerf gun or he's got an airsoft gun, you know, mostly he's just shooting uh, cardboard targets or something that to that effect. But the little one sees that, picks up the gun, knows that he points it. And starts waving it around and pointing at everybody. And then you know he tries to work the trigger, but he's not really strong enough yet. So what does he do? I watch this happen, and I I put a stop to it naturally because I don't want you know to be reinforcing uh, 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 these sorts of things. But he, he he struggles to get the trigger to go right. And so I'm just sitting on the couch and I'm watching him kind of. For me, it was more like watching my my youngest son to see how he would handle that gun and what he would do with it naturally right he's a little too young for me to be able to really educate well on the the finer points of gun safety right and so uh other than you see gun don't touch gun right you know that, that's about what he understands right now because he understands don't touch stove don't touch uh you know other things in the house that we don't want him to touch but uh, so I'm just watching him, just kind of a, somewhat amused and and observing how he was handling that, and he's struggling with the trigger, uh, and he flips it around. He looks straight down the muzzle and puts his th- two thumbs on it and pushes it down. Uh, and, and and which I mean, and I was like, you know, you see, you hear so many of these little kids that gain access to their parents or grandparents or somebody else's gun in a home, and so many times I think those wounds are are probably head wounds. I think it, I, I think that's just, I think that's naturally what a little one uh, tends to do is they flip it around so they can get a little more leverage, put the thumbs on the trigger, push the trigger down, and to do that, it's it's almost inevitably pointing at your head, your face. Yeah. Right, and that's so that's the that's the scary thing with that kind of stuff when uh, when especially the little ones gain an authorized access to a firearm. So uh, I I commend uh, Vera Safety with uh, uh, you know their product. I, I think it you know looks like a pretty decent one. I saw you reviewed and I thought it was pretty good. Uh, there, there's other products out there that are trying similar things, but I don't feel like they excel quite so well as I think this one is. So so that's pretty cool. Uh, my review today. My review is going to be on the P320, so obviously six hour, P320 X5 Legion. That's cool. I've had it for a few months now. Um, and so here it is. All right. Those of you that are able to view on Facebook and YouTube, if you are listening to the audio only, well, maybe head on over to the YouTube channel or Facebook page if you want to actually see it in person. Uh, or you may already know what it looks like. Now, so everyone knows I do have a barrel block in this, okay, for just safe handling purposes as I am uh, doing so here on camera. 
Uh, and so P320 X5 Legion, I had, I have the original uh, X5 and shot it in competition, mostly three gun for the last couple of seasons. And I've been very pleased, very happy with the 320 X5. I think it's a fantastic firearm. Last year, Sig Sauer blew us out of the water, blew me out of the water. Like I did not see it coming at all. Um, the, uh, the, the Legion, right? Cause I already thought the, the, the X5 was, was pretty good, but they came out with this TXG grip module, tungsten <laughs> infused grip module. This thing is like, which doctor level, you know, of innovation. It, it's, I mean, who would have thought Obviously, somebody did, and I know Phil Strader was was very integral to this whole idea. But who would have? I mean, so all right. Here's the thing: you got steel framed guns, uh, you know, out there, C, uh, or aluminum framed, but you know, like 1911 CZs, stuff of that nature, right? They weigh a little bit more, uh, so that weight's going to help a little bit on controllability and tamping down that recoil some, right? Then you have polymer framed guns, which are lighter weight, so they might be a little bit more jumpy, but also Palmer has some added benefits that it, it actually, if you watch Palmer framed guns being fired under like super slow-mo, you'll see that whole Palmer frame like flexing and moving. And it's it's a little bit weird and a little bit scary, actually. If the first time you see it, you're like, my gun is doing that every time it shoots? Yeah, it is. Uh, but the Palmer is designed in such a way, you know, and, and of course we have an internal frame, so the gun's not going to blow apart, but it's kind of freaky. But the reality is, is Palmer does actually do some work in terms of mitigating some of that recoil. There's some absorption that occurs in the material itself. Well, the downside again is Palmer's a lot lighter weight. So you take tungsten and infuse it into a Palmer mixture stick that in a mold and cast it, and you end up with this. This gun weighs like 43 and a half ounces. Basically, the max allowable weight for, well, they just changed it, by the way, with the new 2020 USPSA rules, but the under the old rules, this was the basically the maximum the gun could weigh uh, for production or carry optics gun. It is hefty, okay? So now, is this something I would want to carry as a carry gun? Not necessarily, but for a competition gun, Heck yeah, man. And I've been shooting this in, I've kind of taken a step back from three gun matches. I've been shooting more USPSA. I just shot a match last week. Uh, actually the first match I shot, I think was with this gun as well. Uh, and I uh, took first place on the, the match I shot last week. I took second place. Uh, now I think, I still think I would have finished pretty, pretty well, but I'll tell you shooting this thing is a dream. Uh, if you look at footage of me shooting it, 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 it just, this is the recoil motion right here. You know, it's like where normal recoil might be like, I don't know, 10 or 10 degrees or something. It's like three. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's, it's ridiculously flat shooting. Uh, you do see the one I have here is, is without the magwell. So it does come with an integrated magwell. I have to remove it for carry optics rules. Um, but uh, with the magwell is awesome as well. I'm running the Romeo one red dot on this. Uh, I do not yet actually have the Romeo 1 Pro. So the Legion comes set up for a Romeo 1 Pro footprint. Uh, so this is the truth is actually this is my original X5 slide with my original Romeo 1 that I've just swapped out the slide and put it on uh, the uh, Legion grip module. 
The trigger's a little bit different than what comes with the Legion. Uh, this is a great, that's because this is a Grey Guns uh, trigger right here. So I upgraded the trigger to a Grey Guns one. Uh, makes it really, really nice. Uh, about three, three and a half pounds uh, for striker fired. It's pretty dang good. Um, so I, it, interestingly enough, Matthew, the tungsten infused polymer, it changes the grippiness of the material hmm. I th- in some weird way. Because um, like if you look at the actual texture of the stippling, right? It looks identical to the same stippling on the original uh, grip modules, but it's grippier. So there's something hmm. about the way, like, in, you know, I say this because on the original one, I added some grip tape to give me a little bit more bite. I don't feel like I have to do that with this one. Wow. It's pretty interesting. interesting. Yeah. So I'll just say I've got thousands of rounds for this gun so far. I, I put 2,000 of it just in one weekend. Taking, uh, I shot this all weekend long with Mike Seeklander and uh, uh, Rob Latham in their bigger circle course that I participated in in November, uh, and it performed admirably. There was one drill they had to shoot. It was a fade-back drill where we started at five yards, I think it was, and we just kept working our way back, uh, back to 25 yards. And I think it was... I can't remember how many shots, like 20 some odd shots. And uh, I was the only one that shot the, I, I believe I shot a perfect score or I kept everything. Remember, maybe I was the only one that kept everything in the black. No, I think I was the only one that shot. I think I shot a perfect score. Uh, there was guys there with high end 2011s, hmm. you know, and, and stuff and, and guns that are way more expensive, way fancier than this. This thing flat out shoots it is a great gun. So there you go. I, I probably spent enough time on it uh, as it is. But guys, if it's particularly if you're looking to get into competition shooting, I strongly encourage you, I recommend looking into the 320 X5 Legion. I, I'm pretty dang confident you're going to love and enjoy it. If you're looking for a holster to pair with it, I've got the LAG Tactical Supernova Holster. Uh, this is, uh, they're actually a sponsor of mine, just in full disclosure, LG tactical sponsors me for my competition gear, my mag pouches, my holsters. And, uh, this is actually a little bit upgraded version or model from the original supernova that I had. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's great. It's a great holster. I got it mounted here with a Safari land QLS. Uh, I can take it on and off really quickly on the, uh, the drop, uh, uh, holster mount, whatever thing. So yeah, there you go. LG Tactical Supernova Holster, P320, X5, Legion. Love it. I will be shooting a lot more this year with this gun and with this very setup right here. Very cool, man. I was excited to hear what you... Uh, I know you, you talked about it a couple of times, but didn't get really in-depth, and that's really neat. Yeah, probably... F- 4,000, 5,000 rounds, something somewhere around there that I've put through it now up to this point. Um, oh, speaking of which, I have been kind of quiet about this. I actually shot it through a winter postal match. Uh, and I kind of failed the last week of that match. It was a, it was something put on by BJ Norris. Uh, My Gun Tips is a website that he has, and he did the My Gun Tips my gun tips postal match back in like December and January. Uh, and, uh, I participated and I shot this the whole way through that and also did very well. I think I finished third place, uh, you know, nationwide, uh, you know, not a ton of shooters were participating, but there was, you know, some legit like grandmaster level shooters. Um, so I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Great, great gun. Good job, man. That's cool. Yeah. Very cool. Yep. That's my report. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. (laughs) So, 
All right. That's cool. that brings us to the end of the episode here. Yeah. Crazy. The time has flown by. Yes. It's it's been so much fun, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Quick question for Minuteman for Jesus on YouTube. Uh it, yes, it is a nine millimeter, sir. It is a nine millimeter. They only the the X five P three twenty only comes right now, nine millimeter. There's been rumor that they, that a forty would come at some point. Um, don't know if, you know how true or substantiated that is but it is a nine millimeter i think you i think there's somebody out there playing with the idea or maybe they're actually even selling 40 caliber uh uh, barrels for them now but i don't i don't know for sure on that but Hmm. right now i I would just count on nine and 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 that actually makes sense uh because uh if you're shooting carry optics or production your 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 minor power factor anyway, so there's really no point in shooting anything bigger. It's not going to get you more points because the division itself is is limited to minor uh, power factor points. So you might as well just shoot a nine like everybody else would be. So again, I understand that not everybody would buy one of these just for competition use, but from a competition perspective. Uh, anyway, so well, guys. Oh wait giveaway yeah i was just gonna <laughs> i was waiting i was waiting i got it all pulled up and everything oh well well carry yeah. oh you know carry away with it good <laughs> sir so we're gonna pick a winner of what an ssp eyewear gift card 50 dollar gift card 50 dollar gift card sweet yes so who's it gonna be i'm gonna do the drum roll then all Who's right be the announcer here we I'm go ready to go all right, the winner of the SSP Eyewear $50 gift card is first name Tony, last name starts with an L, and you have a Gmail email address that's T-O, and then uh, yeah, has a couple numbers good. in it. T- T- Tony L. Yeah, yeah. Tony, Tony L. L. Congratulations, Tony. man. Almost, but not. It's close. Because we know a Tony Lamb. Yes, that is, UTM. but it's close. But that, it's would be, close. that would be hilarious if he signed up for our giveaway. And I guess, <laughs> you know, technically he could qualify. So, yeah. All right. Congrats, Tony L., whoever you are. Uh, you are going to get, it, it's, you're going to get a, a, a coupon code or a voucher code, uh, $50 SSBI wear. That's what I wear. That's what I was using in, in, in my last uh, competition shooting. It's actually the, uh, uh, what's the name of those I got? You, you, I think you have a set too, Matthew. The Methow ones or the... Yes, two. Methow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The full like wrap around and you know, single lens. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you could swap them out, you know, with all clear and yellow and like kind of yep. like a pink, you know, and, and brown and, you know, all these different colors. I love those. Yeah. It's really, really, really cool. I think you can not quite buy a Methow kit with 50 bucks, but it would get you well on your way and I'd highly recommend it. Yep. Heck and- yeah, man. Next week, uh, giveaway will be a 511 hat, uh, Flight 93 commemorative 511 ball cap. Nice. Yes. Awesome. So, guys, make sure you're signing up for the weekly giveaway at concealedcarry.com forward slash podcast prize. All right. And uh, so, with that, it is time to let you go, and we bid you all farewell. But before we do, a reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. 
A reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.